ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Christopher Kimball, host of Milk Street Radio. If you'd like to change the way you cook and also think about food, please check out the Milk Street podcast. We travel around the world to find pizza in Tokyo, Egyptian food in Berlin, and Bhutanese farmers in Vermont. We speak to Jamie Oliver, Rachel Ray, Al Roker, Ina Garten, as well as Michael Twitty, Marcus Samuelson, and Alice Waters. And we'll introduce you to recipes that will change the way you cook, from bright pink Tottenham cake to Afghan dumplings to shoyu sugar steak, and that one is direct from Hawaii. It's a whole new world of food right here on Milk Street Radio. Please check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts, or go to 177milkstreet.com. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. Hello and welcome. This is uh, Books of the Year, another Q&A session with Sebastian Payne this time. This is a companion piece to our other conversation with Sebastian, The Fall of Boris Johnson, The Full Story. You can go to another podcast to get all that. As you can hear, the music is still thumping its way through our soundproof studio. I don't quite... Do you recognise this song, Sebastian? Yes. Oh, Matt. Okay. What is it? Oh, when you say you recognise it, yes, you're I, just I, repeating I, I, the I notes. I don't recognise it, but yes, but I'm... Is it... It's Motown, will be my guess. Oh, I'm coming to the right side now. Did your band play this? Back I don't, the I, if they did, it didn't sound this good. Okay, no, all right. Anyway, so while the music is playing, everybody around these tables outside, they're, what they're talking about is questions about Sebastian Payne. Yes, they are. Question number one, Sebastian. What is the last book that you really, really enjoyed reading? Not just, it was all right. I'm just trying to think. The last book I read was the companion piece to my book, which is Out of the Blue, which was the biography of Liz Truss that was written by my journalistic comrades, Harry Cole and James Heal, about the prime minister who came in between the cut one and Boris Johnson. They had um, more of a problem, I would think, yes. in the calendar and <laughs> editing and rewriting. I mean, they were basically writing a book as events were happening. So I'm really glad to say that I didn't quite have to do that. And I actually really enjoyed that book because I felt for them. But Harry and James have done a fantastic effort of trying to tell a story about somebody who's going to be such a relatively inconsequential political figure and historical figure and still making it interesting and making it worth reading. And it ends with probably one of the best quotes of any political book where Liz Truss, you know, it's all over and she turns to someone and says, well, at least I've been prime minister. And I thought, great. I'm sure all the mortgage payers across the country are absolutely <laughs> delighted to read that particular, absolutely particular thing. The last book I really enjoyed getting stuck into is a much longer book. I read that one very quickly. It was Faster Than a Cannonball by Dylan Jones about 1995. So that was my first memory of music. I was six years old at that point during Britpop. And the first tape that my father bought me was Don't Look Back in Anger, the single by Oasis. And so that was my first kind of cultural memory. And when I read this book, it was great to read all the kind of backwards and forwards about, you know, that time and Kate Moss and the Groucho Club and all that. And Dylan Jones just interviewed loads of people and he's done the opposite of what I did for my book where he's just put verbatim transcripts of all the great figures from the mid-1990s, whereas mine I've had to kind of go through and pick out all the different bits. So I love that. 
you made Matt Mad <laughs> Phil. Six in nineteen ninety-five. So incredibly oh, old. Oh my Noel goodness. Noel Gallagher came on my Radio One show and he sang Don't Look Back in Anger acoustically, sitting opposite me, which was just fantastic. I can imagine. I'm only <laughs> mentioning that just because I feel old. <laughs> If it's any help, I was also five in 1995. Uh, my birthday was in the middle of that, yeah. <laughs> no, you're making it worse. So? Absolutely making it worse. Right, let's get back to the book. When you're writing uh, a book, and I wonder how you're going to answer this, given we know that you base books on interviews mainly, um, but when you're writing a book, how many books do you take out of the library for research, or, or do you take any? Because I'm guessing with the Red Ball book, you were up there doing the interviews again. That book was kind of, I was dipping in and out of, quite a lot of books. When I did Broken Heartlands, I had about 20 books that I was dipping in and out of sort of political histories, local histories, all that kind of things. I got a load of history books for the different 10 places that I visited, but I wasn't kind of reading and going into them all. For this book, it was actually quite small. I had, there's two major biographies of Boris Johnson, Andrew Jimson's book, which was the first. Sonia Purnell wrote a book called Just Boris. So I kind of had them when I was reflecting on his life and his career. There was Tim Shipman's Brexit books, which are very good. All Out War and Fallout. And then the other fifth book by Alan Watkins called A Conservative Coup. And this was written about the fall of Margaret Thatcher. And that book is very much the sort of model of an instant history. And that gave us the famous phrase of the men in grey suits to describe the 1922 committee when they went and told Mrs Thatcher it was over. So I've managed to find the copy of that online. It's been out of print for many years. So because this was quite an instant history and, and I was doing contemporaneous events, there wasn't that much reading material. But I guess like every other author, slots of Wikipedia. <laughs> Do you have a favourite political writer? Uh, I mean, and into this answer... Maybe there's a favourite political figure who intrigues you more than others. So a favourite political writer that you would always go to and a political figure of interest. There's so many great political writers, it's actually quite hard to choose one particular person. But I think one person who I always really enjoy their columns is Danny Finkelstein in The Times, mm -hmm. that he writes every week. And he's a conservative grandee. He's worked for John Major and David Cameron. And he's got a great historical perspective on stuff. And I think if you're sort of struggling through the kind of morass of news and you want a kind of sensible take, I always find Danny Finkelstein really good to go to for that. And while I'm sort of taking a Boris Johnson view of cakeism, I'm going to throw in a, another political writer as well. I do think that my colleague Janan Ganesh at the FT is always brilliant, that Janan Ganesh takes the sort of, in some ways, an opposite view from me. He doesn't do a lot of reporting. He doesn't get stuck in the trenches, but he's an absolutely beautiful writer and has great takes, and particularly during the coalition years and when he was in America, Janan wrote some really, really insightful stuff that always made you stop and think about that. In terms of political figures, I do have to confess, Boris Johnson, you know, as Walt Whitman might say, he contains far too many multitudes. In terms you can't of, go, you can't go for the subject of the book that you've just written yourself. That was a bit tricky, but I do think I will give you one aside from Boris in a moment. But I think Boris Johnson is, for me, the reason I was compelled to do this is the most consequential political figure since Tony Blair. That I mean, that the effect he's had on the country, the effect he's had on politics, there's no one since Blair who's come near him. Um, and I think, you know. I remember that someone who worked very close to Boris Johnson said to me, he wants to be the first real prime minister of the 21st century. Now, he never was able to fulfill that aim because of how it all came to a crashing end. The person I find of a bit more historical vintage, the most fascinating for me is Michael Heseltine, who obviously was many different ministers under 
Margaret Thatcher and John Major. He gave the right to buy council houses, which gave my grandmother property first time in her life in a council house in County Durham. He also was right about many of the country's problems. He was advocating what we now call levelling up in 1990, through advocating directly elected mayors. He was advocating devolution of taxation and all that kind of stuff. And the debates that we've got to now, in a weird way, if we'd done everything Michael Hesitant wanted to in 1990, would have been a very different country. We'd have a much more interventionist government. He wanted to spend more money, get more involved. But it never quite happened because of where conservative politics were. And then, of course, he got wrapped up in the Europe debate that we're still talking about now. Now. But for me, I think he's a fascinating figure and his legacy will be very much tied into Brexit because he wanted, obviously, you know, a second referendum and got stuck in on that. But his domestic record, I think, is a very important part of what he tries to do. Do you have a favourite place to write? Because there are some authors we talked to. Marina Hyde came on a few podcasts ago and she said, just write anywhere, anywhere at all. She said, even if the kids are running around your ankles, I can still write. Can you write anywhere or do you just have one place where you go? I could obviously never disagree with the great Marina, and she is right about that, that a lot of writing I do day to day is in a very busy office in the House of Commons on the third floor in a corridor known as Burma Road due to its lovely atmospherics. And I'm surrounded by five FT colleagues who are constantly on the phone writing, having their own conversations, and you just have to sort of get your head down and do it. And you just learn to block things out. But I've got two particular favourite places I love to write. One where I wrote this book and the first one where I wrote uh, the other book. So I wrote this in Brixham in Devon. I've got two great friends of mine, Sam and Emily, who have bought basically faulty towers down there. It's a former B&B and it's still got a kind of revolving door where you could imagine Manuel running in and out of it. And it's got a very faulty towers-esque bar in it with a fantastic selection. And I basically moved in with them for the whole of August this year where I wrote the book. The room I was staying in was still kitted out like a 1980s B&B room with MFI wardrobes and a quite wonky bed, but with gorgeous views, lovely breeze from the sea. And I kind of got up, did seven to nine, went for a swim in the sea, had a coffee, came back, did two more hours, had lunch, did more, and just did that rhythm constantly for a month. And the thing that was good for being there was just sort of poor phone signal. So no Twitter, no Instagram, no social media. And because I had all the research, I could just do it. So that was particularly productive. My other favourite place where I wrote a lot of broken heartlands was Albra Beach in Suffolk that I've got some very good friend of mine, Caroline, who owns a lookout tower on the beach where Lawrence van der Post wrote all of his novels. Uh, and it's got a plaque for him. Uh, my name's not on it yet, but I'll, I'll wait <laughs> Is one that day. near the sculpture? It's the just up for Maggie Hamling's sculpture, just a bit further down there. And the lookout tower, they have various art installations on it. But I went there in the winter of 2021 and I did spend about half the time stoking the log burner because it was so cold on the beach. But it, again, it was a great place just to get away from social media and be there. But fundamentally, both books, I end up writing a lot of it just sitting at home in my spare bedroom late at night like everyone yeah. else does. Uh, we've got a question now uh, in the form of a voice note from a colleague of yours, I believe Patrick Maguire, the Red Box editor at The Times. Here's Patrick. Hi, Seb. It's Patrick Maguire here. Quick question for you. You're dealing with a cast of characters who have, in many cases, their own literary ambitions. Nadine Dorries, for instance, has already said she's writing the true story of the fall of Boris Johnson. And, of course, the former Prime Minister will have a memoir in the works too. How do you approach a set of sources who you know are sharpening their own quills and keeping the best anecdotes back for their own publications? How do you make sure that you're getting a complete picture. 
it's one of the most difficult things when you're writing this book that every single person I spoke to has their own agenda in the sense that they either want to tell you something that's true or something that's not true to try and help their version of history, their personal reputation in some of the characters involved in the book who I interviewed. And you have to constantly set it off with what you're hearing. And so, you know, after the book's been published, some of the main characters have sent some polite notes saying, I think you'll find, in fact, this wasn't true. This is what happened. And in some instances, I had seven accounts of events that happened. And all you can really do is make a Venn diagram and have a punt of what you think is best. Because even if people were in the room, they're still trying trying to give their narrative of it with regards to sort of Nadine Dorries and Boris Johnson themselves. They are so true of that as well, that Nadine Dorries will have a particular <coughs> view on what she wants to get forward. When Boris Johnson does his memoirs, he will have a view of what he wants to get forward. What I've tried to do is I don't have a skin in this game. They both do. They've got a story they want to get out. So I've come at this totally dispassionately and trying to tee off all those things. But it is hard. And I mean, you know, if I had two years to sit and research this book. I might get a closer to the actual truth than I did in this, but I think it's a pretty good stab. And the fact is, people who are quibbling about, you know, who dunked a biscuit and what tea or whatever it is, it's all quite minor stuff. Since the book's come out, no one has come and disputed any of the core stuff in it, which I'll take as a great success. No one has said it wasn't the left buttock, for example. No one did, very sadly. Uh, You need to read the book to understand the relevance uh, of that question. Last question. If you hadn't become a journalist, what do you think you'd have been? It might have been a musician, but I'm <laughs> fully aware that I probably didn't possess quite enough level of talent in terms of writing bad songs that the world will hopefully never hear and dancing on stage and playing the bass guitar to actually be successful in that basis. I think I would have been something I do in my spare time, which is a photographer from a very early age. My father gave me his very old Nikon camera when I was about six years old and taught me how to use it and then taught me how to develop film and I did that for many years and I kind of forgot about it when we all started using smartphones and all the rest of it and I picked it back up again in the pandemic and in my first book I did a photo diary that is printed in the book as I went round the red wall in those 10 places that voted Tory for the first time so if I wasn't doing journalism and stuff in the political arena then I think it would certainly be having a go at trying to be a photographer. And what's your third book going to be again? Having done a book a year for the past two years, I am very happy to take a bit of a break and enjoy that. But I think the third book, I've got a longer term project in my mind that I want to do someday, maybe not my third book, but someday, which is about how power really works in the UK. I'm a huge fan of Robert Carver, who wrote those big, dense books about Lyndon Johnson and how he exercised power throughout his life. And Anthony Sampson, who was a great mid-century author in the UK, did similar things here in his series of books were called The Anatomy of Britain. They're really, really good, but no one's really done that. And it's not something I might do immediately, but what I'd love to do is to talk about where power really lies from basically from Buckingham Palace down to the parish council through civil service, MPs, because people don't actually know. Lots of people think MPs have power. They actually have basically no power whatsoever. Cabinet ministers have far less power than you actually think to have shaping events. Weirdly, I think the media and journalists have more power than people actually think they do in how they nudge things. So at some point, I'd like to sit back and do a proper study of how Britain really works. Yeah, what you're saying sounds though you no one's in charge. Um, the Queen, or I should say <clears throat> the King, is in charge. Interesting. I suspect he isn't. But would we be better off if he was? <laughs> Probably not. Wow. Um, hey, stand by me. That was the music that was playing at the start. Is that what it was? Stand by me. Bum, uh, bum, yeah, exactly. Bum. No more because okay. we have to play the, play the rights. The, 
Yeah, exactly. Sebastian, thank you very much. The Fall of Boris Johnson, published by Macmillan, is out now. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email at any time, booksoftheyear at yahoo.com. You can follow us on Instagram. Uh, we're at Pick Any Page. Thank you very much indeed for listening. Sebastian, thank you very much. Look forward to Simon. the third and fourth and fifth book. Thank you, Simon. Here they come. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier, and along with Kate Spencer, I host Forever 35, a podcast about the things we do to take care of ourselves. Join us every Wednesday with guests like author Phoebe Robinson, chef Samin Nosrat, actress Busy Phillips, and even former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. On Mondays and Fridays, we have mini episodes where we answer listeners' questions on everyday problems like how useful a butt mask really is, how to deal with a petty friend, or how to relax after a long day. So join us Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on Forever 35, where we're not experts, but we are two friends who like to talk a lot about serums. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.